when you start to look back, I think that's when you can measure success better because we're all guilty of it. We all look forward, we all target and drive. And I think it is important to have clear goals. Although I like to call them target because targets move. But by having a clear target, you have something to aim for. But it's understanding that it, it may move left or right. Hello and welcome to Run the Business, the podcast that explores the place where running and leadership come together. We'll find out how running can help us with leading, managing people, and generally being better in business. We'll also try and answer that question, do runners make better leaders? I'm Anthony Gay, and today's guest is the CEO and founder of Rixo, a company that makes products that help with sports injury recovery and performance. He's a former professional rugby player who's represented Scotland and the GB7's team, but a serious injury shortened his playing career, and after that, he took up a new challenge and qualified as a chartered physiotherapist. After that, he joined the army and spent time as part of a UN peacekeeping force in Central Africa, where the idea for his business came about. We've got so much to talk about. Cameron Johnston, welcome to Run the Business. Hi, Anne. Thanks for having me. How, how are you today, Cameron? Yeah, great. Thank you. Absolutely brilliant. Now, we usually start by talking about a recent run uh, or, or you know, when you've been out doing something. I know you're not running at the moment and you're dealing with an injury. And I know we're going to talk more about that through the interview. But how does an active guy like you handle that? Because I know it must be quite frustrating. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, sport is phenomenal when it comes to just refreshing the mind and that release you get as well that I think irrespective of the level of sport you play or compete or run you identify by your sport so suddenly when it's sort of taken away from you um, it's you have this whole identity where you're just like well I, I just really want to get out and, and go running so it's finding other ways to balance it um, and to be fair it's got me into swimming and then also just trying to do other things around mindfulness. Um, you realize sometimes that the physical exertion is great for fitness and CV, but a lot of the time it's it's the clarity of mind that comes after doing something challenging, like, like a long run. And we'll talk more about how running became part of your life uh, as, as we go through the interview. But take us back to the beginning, because I know you were pretty fast at school and then rugby became the thing in your life, didn't it? Yeah, back in my youth many moons ago, I was a sprinter. So for me, anything over 100 metres at the time was long distance. <laughs> and, um, so I did a lot of sprinting, 100 metres, 200 metres, uh, did some junior national stuff, um, junior national champs. But I always had this passion for rugby and team sport I think for me the definitive moment was I was in the final of the Scottish schools 100 meters and it's always the last event before the four by one relay it was raining because of course we're in Scotland and uh, my blocks slipped at the start and so all that work and preparation and everything it led me to that point and your blocks slipping there's there's no way of coming back from that on 100 meters and that's where I then really focused my drive and energy into rugby and absolutely loved it. The team mentality, the camaraderie, the physical, mental um, strength. And I got into sevens more than I did 50. Well, you play 15s, but sevens for me was my, my bread and butter. And for those that are maybe unfamiliar, sevens, you play on a full size pitch, seven players in each team and the game is 15 minutes so it's very short sharp hard fast Mm -hmm. and a lot of space to run Um, and so it's more about endurance sprinting 
but it was yeah phenomenal absolutely phenomenal and that's where I really sort of cut my teeth into the into the rugby world and and found yeah found my calling so tell me about that point where things changed and when rugby was taken away for you, from you at a point that you you still didn't that I think at that point you hadn't realized your potential had you and you, you had more to give and it, it was taken away yeah definitely so I was fortunate in the experiences that I had and the opportunities I got I mean it did come with a lot of hard work at school I was playing for school level I was playing Edinburgh district Scotland age grades and then towards the end into the uh, professional academy system and then Signed with Newcastle Falcons out of school into their academy, continued with the international and then the Scotland Sevens for three years and then fortunate enough to get GB Sevens. This was pre-Beijing Olympics. So they were trying to get into the Olympics, but sadly it didn't. But we still played at the World Games, which was great. Yeah. But yeah, the 27th of November 2007, a date that will sort of stay with me forever, I um, was spear tackled on the pitch. So... Playing out on the wing, running forwards, uh, somebody tackled me, picked me up, lifted me and dropped me on my neck. And that's when I had two fractures in my spine, a dislocated shoulder and a, and a torn hip. And so, yeah, at 21, suddenly everything you've been gearing towards just disappears. Mm-hmm. It, the rug is pulled out from under you. I was in hospital for about a month and then I was fitted with a large sort of metal cage for around a year, nine months. And you went from got everything from running, gym, fitness, exertion, outdoors to suddenly being bedbound. But the big thing that I learned immediately was your mindset doesn't change. So in my head, I I was still the athlete. I'd have a bad day. I'd still want to get up and go for a run. I'd still want to get up and go to the gym, but you couldn't. And that was the difficult part. And as I mentioned before, the the identity that comes with sport and certainly for the rugby that I was playing it was more than just a sport it was everything to me it was it was who I was it was where I was going it was your whole life and it was suddenly taken away and for clarity because I I know you describe what happened you you broke your back didn't you and that that's what happened on that day yeah so fractured my spine in two places was the was the big injury yeah, it'd be interesting to understand how that changed at the time. It changed your feelings towards rugby. I mean, was it, it? Did it change instantly, or did it take time for you to kind of see rugby in a in a different way? Um, it took a lot of time, and like the, I had to go through the grieving process. So, I mean, there's a definitive moment of denial straight away. I was in hospital for two weeks at this point, and I got a phone call from the manager of one of the, an invitational team. Um, so a lot of brands have a team. So I used to play for Cougar, the brand, and you'd play sevens around the world in these sort of exhibition tournaments, and they were great fun. And I got a phone call two weeks I'd been in hospital, phone call from the manager. There was a competition in the Cayman Isles in six weeks' time. <laughs> Would I be free to play? And I said, yes. I said, yeah, yeah, fine. I've had a bit of an injury, but I'll be back. And uh a friend of mine was there. He'd actually taken a, a week off work to sit with me in hospital, which was amazing. But he picked up the phone and said, no, Cameron's broken his back. And so I think that was the realization. And then although there was never sort of any issues with nerve damage and my ability to walk, but I still had to gingerly learn to walk again, having been bedbound for so long and getting up and moving around in the spinal frame was a realization that things were over and I just 
burst into tears. It was a pretty low point. It was very dark. Mm. And then the years that followed, I didn't watch rugby. I couldn't. Um, and then gradually over time, about a year later, I started to engage again. And I actually went back to play. Um, I tried and I had a game with Newcastle Falcons Academy against Leicester Tigers. But I remember Manu ended my life in a tackle. <laughs> and I, uh, I just said, I, I can't do this. And it wasn't potentially my physical capabilities. It was mentally. Yeah. I, I wasn't the same person. I was ducking out of tackles, uh, nodding, uh, sort of hitting 100%, passing when I should have been running. There was an absolute fear and awareness of my back. And that's when I made the decision to to step away from rugby. And it has been hard. It's a lot easier now. I don't particularly follow rugby as a team. I do follow the internationals. But it was always difficult watching friends that I'd played alongside, played with, played against as their careers were progressing. You always want them to do well, but equally... As you mentioned before, I hadn't really hit my true potential. I was 21 when it happened, and there was a feeling of disappointment in myself, which is bizarre. I was disappointed that I hadn't continued. But equally, I achieved a lot, and I was very proud of what I did achieve. And in hindsight now, I'm I'm actually fortunate that I had such a traumatic injury that ended my career at that point because it enabled me to do a de- definitive switch, whereas I'm, other people aren't so lucky and they have long careers, they're plagued with injuries, rugby's a, a sport that's around for it and they never quite get to where they need to and, and they find themselves in my position at 35. Instead, I was 21 and still had a lot in front of me. And finding a purpose was something that you you did fairly quickly, didn't you, in terms of, well, not not quickly, but you, you found a purpose outside of rugby and focused on the physiotherapy. So tell me that you know about the switch to the career as a as a chartered physiotherapist and and how quickly that that came about. How, how what, you know at what point did you make that decision as, as to this is what I'm going to do? Yeah. So with the physiotherapy, my view was if you can't beat them, join them. <laughs> the continual injuries. Um, it was time to to become a physio. So I actually was studying whilst I was playing. So I finished my first degree when I was in hospital. So I did a sports science degree. And then when I came out of that, did a year of, of rehab and a few jobs here and there, there was a massive void in my life that I needed to fill. And that's when I looked at the career change and explored my options and decided, yeah, becoming a physio was a good transition. And so I studied in Newcastle and then came out and I worked around the bazaars for a bit in the NHS. I did some private practice and professional sport. But when I was at university, I was in the OTC, so the officers training courts of the army cadets for university and that I sort of realized the one thing I was missing was that camaraderie of a team environment I always had it in rugby you had it at school you had it at rugby and that's when I decided to join the military and I sort of come from a military background my parents both served my grandfather served um, but it was never something that was sort of forefront in our family life but having done that I realized actually that's where I wanted to go. I wanted to sort of make a difference in an extreme environment um, as I did when I was in South Sudan. And that's where I sort of transitioned over. And I had this unique perspective, having had a number of injuries, you can relate to it in a firsthand term. And then the sports science degree, which led into the physio. Um, And so it all sort of guided me down that path, really. And it's just amazing to hear you talk about how you reframed 
your life and and how you saw the positives in what you had and I mean and I don't think that's something that everybody is able to do and just to hear you tell the story and and you know how this this different career different thing came out it's it's yeah amazing to hear when you were in Africa with the UN that's that's where the idea for the business came about wasn't it yeah that's correct so i'd um deployed with the united nations into south sudan um there was a there's a large peacekeeping operation that's been ongoing there for over a decade so our task uh, we deployed as a, a field hospital. So there was 300 clinicians and we deployed as the entry-level operation to build a field hospital. And our primary task was to provide medical care for the 12,000 UN troops that were doing the peacekeeping, um, active peacekeeping in, in the region. So the I think there was 140,000 refugees in the camp where we were. And it was in a tent in the desert in 50 degree heats. In the physio side of it, the injuries I was seeing was a lot of MSK, so the ones that you would attribute to like a sports team, a lot of ankles, knees, backs, the the type of injuries that you, you'd pick up and see um, in, in day-to-day life. But the problem we had was in the austere environment that we were, the water source was contaminated at one point, so we couldn't do the basics of, of ice, and we were on rationed bottled water. Equally, the diesel generators that were providing power kept cutting out. They were intermittent. So you had these amazing pieces of kit that suddenly became a £7,000 doorstop. (laughs) So trying to provide the basic fundamentals of acute injury management became really difficult. And so I was getting frustrated and I started doing some research, what was available through the wider catalogue of equipment we had, um, and then across what was available in the open market and civilian market. And... What it led me to find was that there's a lot of really good kit, a lot of research goes in at the top end, and then everything below that just seems to get neglected. So it was then the difference between a bag of frozen peas or one of those burst in a bag type devices or the £7,000 piece of gold standard kit. There's other items in between uh, various neoprene type things and They've just been the same for years. And I just, I think the drive for me is I always think we can do better. Like, so looking at kit and equipment every single time, it's always like, okay, what can we do better? How can this be better? And that's what led me to design the first concept of the Rixo recovery cuffs. And the idea behind it was to do with, we had these big, they're called reefers, which are big shipping containers that are refrigerated for bloods and fluids and things. And I just thought you can put something in there. And so I designed the the first concept, which was a compression uh, sleeve that has an integrated gel that allows the whole unit to be frozen or heated up, which is the other benefit. And so what you're doing then is you're creating something that's cost-effective, super easy to use, but can be used multiple times. So you're not then tied down to needing an electricity source when in use. Uh, you don't need ice, you don't need water. It's pull it on, sits in place, does its job, and then it goes back in the freezer. And and that's where the concept really started from, was just trying to create something for everyone that is easy to use, convenient, and supported by evidence. And so originally it was all to do with injury management, but when we got back to the UK and I started doing some designs and started making them, the 
GB squad bought them for Tokyo for the middle and long distance track team. And so they bought the calf ones for the recovery element. So what they would do is they would use them warm after the for the transition from the tr- the warm up ground to the start line to make sure the muscles maintained that level of readiness immediately after finishing they'd have them frozen so then they would put them on frozen and they could start the recovery immediately from that moment they stopped and as they transitioned back to the hotel where they could then implement their wider recovery protocols so it, it gave them that edge on and it also helped. There was some key athletes where um, were suffering from injuries on the run up to the Olympics, and so they were using them. Um, and it, it's just it's creating something that's really highly versatile. And and at what point did you see that become a business? At, at what point did you think actually this is something I can I, I, I can do as a as a, as a career as a business? That's oh, a good question because sometimes I'm still pinching myself. <laughs> I recognized it's like everything. Necessity is the mother of all invention. And so I was designing a lot of these things. And you always get called my called a dreamer by friends and family. And then I started designing it. And then it was Cameron and his little idea. And then won some awards and got some traction. And that's when it was feedback from athletes and people using it is when you realize it's it's making a difference and for me that it, that trumps everything mm. and that's when i realized actually there is applications and use for this in so many areas i got introduced to someone who's a, a friend of a friend who was a footballer in his youth he's now in his 70s he's uh, got into golfing but as with everyone he's got really bad arthritic knees and had a knee replacement um, but the pain was so much about three months after he couldn't play golf and so I started designing a concept for the knee and I was like, okay, sort of put it together. I gave him the two prototypes and I said, look, try these out, freeze it in the freezer, um, use it for pain, heat it in the microwave, use it before you go out to help mobility. I hadn't heard from him for a while. It was about 10 days later. He phoned me from the golf course as he was playing his second round of golf, relatively pain-free. And for me that it's, I mean, that's worth more than anything in the world. When, and it's sort of reserved back to what we were talking about earlier about identity and identifying with the sport. But equally, it's what sport does to you if it's taken away, the, the mental health aspect. It trickles over into everything. So if you have a busy lifestyle, busy family, but your go-to is running and suddenly you've got a niggling knee pain that won't mm. go away, you can't run as frequently or as far you know what your true potential is, but it just won't shift. And then that starts to trickle into the rest of your life, your day-to-day work, uh, your mood, your sleep, everything becomes affected from something that can be managed really easily by using something that's effective and, yeah, it doesn't break the bank. Where did running become more important for you in in this journey that you you've been on and because you you know you talked at the beginning about being a sprinter and then from a uh you know an army perspective the the endurance I'm, I'm guessing is something which is is more um you know something that you you, you seek but where did did running through this journey become something for you so it would have been as i was training to get into the army so as i went through my second degree um was still looking for my purpose. I knew I was studying, joined the OTC, and that's when you start getting introduced to it and the army fitness. And that's when running became something for me. And I actually am 
I don't know if it's because I'm Scottish, but I love running when the weather is just awful. So I love those moments of running in blistering rain and wind in somewhere really obscure. And what I liked about running was not the competitive element. I'd always come from rugby, which is hugely competitive and certainly in the field that I was striving for. Whereas I put myself into running and it was me against the world and I didn't do anything competitive. I was competing with myself. But it was that ability to pull on some trainers and just disappear for an hour, two hours. It was the ability to do it anywhere. So as I was training for the army to get in and do my officer selection, it was all about hitting key times and key weights and making sure that I was good enough. But then once I was into the army, you had the benefit of being posted to some amazing places. So running just became a habit and a hobby. So training in uh, the southern part of Germany near the Black Forest, we were doing some stuff with the 82nd Airborne, but you've got these massive uh, tank ranges which are then in forested areas and there's deer and so the weather's a nice temperate. There's nothing better than pulling on a pair of trainers and going for a run. So for me, it was the middle to long distance, nothing extreme, but it was about the environment that I was running in. And even out in South Sudan, I mean, you were confined to a relatively small space, but there's not everywhere you can go running and just see the wildlife that's around you in South Sudan that you wouldn't see in the UK. And so that for me was where the passion came. And the reason I had to step back and stop running was when I was actually in South Sudan, the, um, I mentioned before the water source was contaminated. I actually came down with three strains of E. coli, Giardia, Cryptosporidium, and another tropical disease, and was in isolation for a while. And I lost about two stone in body weight uh, quite rapidly. And when I came back, I wasn't able to put the muscle bulk back on. And that's when all these other injuries sort of started to show their head. Whereas previously, I'd had that really good base level strength that it, it didn't really matter. Whereas I started to develop nerve pains down the back of my leg uh, to find out that the fracture at the lower back had slipped forward um, and it was pressing on the nerves and all of these little things started to come out and that's where gradually you sort of have to start winding it back because it was impacting on every area of your life and 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 pain is is not a good thing to have and and in this journey that we're talking about uh that led to to Rixo being being created. Tell me about some lessons that you you learned on the way. Were there things that if you kind of look back and um, think about the lessons that you learned, what, what sticks out? That is an amazing question. There are so many. And I mean, I'm learning something every single day. I'm, I'm not, my background isn't business and my background isn't product design. And so everything I've learned has been through trial and error. So some of the biggest lessons I've learned, everything always takes longer and costs more than you think. So it's sort of managing expectations. Um, a lot of the time I'm a very driven person and patience isn't one of my strong virtues. So it's understanding. And this is something that I learned and working with my business partner, definitely on on expectation management, goal setting, targets. When do we know that it's we need to switch tact and, and focus somewhere else? Um, And we learned that the hard way through a media marketing campaign. So we were delayed by six months on production due to COVID and Brexit. So when product landed, it was six months late. And so what we did or what I made the decision to do was, 
right, okay, do a really fast, hard, quick marketing campaign, which flopped. Whereas in fact, what we should have done is wait and have the patients give it a month. We were in Black Friday, December, it was the wrong time to do it. And that's a lesson that has now transcended over is that it's just having some patience and choosing the right moment because otherwise it can go oh, terribly wrong. And I think the other one is, um, and it's a cliched one and they say it all the time, but fail fast. Uh, this is where for someone like myself and a lot of people out there is having to reshape the view on failure. So, and how you go about it because it will happen inevitably. But if you can do it with minimizing risk and impact and do it in a way that it will benefit you from lessons learned. It's no longer a failure. It's a lesson learned. Mm -hmm. So uh, we've had it in product development, product design, um, and various other things where it's that test trial and error process. And so it's not necessarily setting out to fail, but it's accepting the fact that it will potentially, and what you can do to mitigate what you learn from it, what you take from it, um, and then how you use it to shape. So Things like uh, the calf cuff. I think we're on the eighth design iteration from the start, from all the data gathered. We've gone from four sizes to nine sizes purely because of the variations in the human body. And there's been a lot of design changes which have come from that. But in doing some of that, we had some sizes that then became obsolete within the product range. So it taught us to be really accurate in our measuring. And then what we can do with the stuff we didn't use is we can use that for prototyping. Um, and so it's finding ways and means. And I think the final one is you can, you can always do more than you think. So I can guarantee that if I was to speak to myself five years back and was to say to them, right, in five years time, you're going to be living in Yorkshire, out the army, you're going to be driving this business. You're going to have a young daughter, four years old. I think I would tell myself, yeah, there's not a chance <laughs> any of that's happening. But it is, you find yourself in this position where every, everything, you've got to get the balance right. And so you can always do more than you think. And that's not necessarily saying you need to work hard and flog yourself. It's just about working smart. And and how, in terms of, you know, those different parts of your life that you mentioned, how, how do you measure success these days, you know, both from a personal point of view and with, with Rick? So do you, do you set yourself goals? Yeah, definitely. I'm notoriously bad at measuring success. And I was actually having this conversation with Richard, my co-founder in Rixo. Um, I think because you're always so target focused going forward, you you fail to reflect on what you've done. And so... A while ago, I started making these little video montages, which would be 30 seconds long, a series of images and small videos with um, a, a little soundtrack. But it would be what we'd achieved over the six months or three month periods. And little things like that is probably where we measure success. It's easy to measure success when you start outlining uh, KPIs and targets, uh, sales, getting physio practices onboarded and working with them, working with businesses, retail space. Um, but sometimes the success isn't always in those targets. The success is the fact that if you look at the last two years, we launched in May 2020 when COVID just first came around. We decided, yeah, we, we first, do we wait out or do we launch? We launched. So we launched during the pandemic. We then had Brexit. We then had 
all the stuff that's going on in and around the world, the, the conflict and war in Ukraine, suddenly all goods that were coming from China into mainland Europe um, were getting delayed if by rail because of the sanctions because they had to go through Russia. So there's all these things that pop up and we get our stuff manufactured in Germany, but raw materials do come from all around the world. And so when you start to look back, I think that's when you can measure success better because we're all guilty of it. We all look forward, we all target and drive. Um, and I think it is important to have clear goals because then you know, well, I like to call them target because targets move. But by having a clear target, you have something to aim for. But it's understanding that it, it may move left or right. Um, but the success comes from everything you've achieved before. And um, because of the sporting background and the nature of the the company that we're, we're growing, we use the the term of a rugby pitch um, for what we do. So the try line is the goal that we need to get to. And then if it doesn't fit, with our goal, it goes on the touchline. Everything on the pitch is everything that we are working towards to get to our goal and get to our try line. And it's understanding the players might change, uh, the pitch might change, but the, the the goal is still the same: is to get is to get to the end. That's brilliant how you kind of frame that. And I guess there's something in that for for anybody listening to this who wants to bring their goals, objectives, targets to life is to put it in a context that 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 fits your the things you like, the things you're passionate about. Yeah, definitely. And for us and for me, definitely, um, it's it's sometimes about saying no. And one of the things when you're in a startup is you can become very excited about a lot of things and it can dilute the direction that you're going. And again, we fell foul to this um, early on. And it's purely because, as I, as I mentioned, I'm trying to design products for for everyone, I'm, I'm trying. I want. To, I set myself the easy goal of, I want to change the mindset of everyone in the world, to start focusing more on recovery in sports and the preventative measures of injury. <laughs> so, really simple target, but my reason behind it is, when we're a lot of the time we focus on performance. So, say you run an hour a day or two hours a day, that's what we focus on, or the gear the shoes, the drinks, the nutrition, everything is about that one hour. But the other 23, 24 hours of the day, our body is fighting to get back to a position where we can then perform to the same level or better. So if we don't get that right, then it means you're never going to truly improve. And that's why it's really, you, you see it so frequently, you'll hit plateaus. You just won't. And it a lot of the time is down to how good your recovery is in getting back to the level where you can then consistently train and improve. And so when you start thinking about all the applications that Rixo can have and the, the products we can help with, the information, part of it was we'd have an idea, we'd, we'd talk about it, we'd move and stuff, and you suddenly find on your metaphorical desk you've got a million things on the go and you just cannot commit to that. And so this is where we sat down and uh, we started the Good Ideas Club, which I think is Richard's way of sort of letting me talk about my crazy ideas <laughs> and then parking them. Um, so we use the rugby pitch mentality, the try line, the goals, the targets, that's where we're going. But every now and again, we will, we'll do the Good Ideas Club where I'll say, right, I've yeah, had a thought, we've been thinking about this product range, or we could create this platform to do this, and we talk about it. Does it fit on the pitch right now? No, but all that information is captured and stored. So when we do move uh, the try line, and it does come into our scope and onto the field, then we've already discussed it and there's an understanding there. But the big thing is 
sometimes about saying no. And it can be really difficult as you're trying to establish yourself as a young brand, young company in a field, because you don't want to miss out on that that one op- it might be that opportunity that's the defining moment but equally by continually doing that you'll you'll end up just treading water and not getting anywhere i, I love that idea of the the good ideas club that gives you that outlet for the for the ideas for the creativity but then having the discipline to to consider you know does it fit does it help us achieve what we need to do now but you've you, but you park it somewhere where you can access it if you need to i think it's fantastic can I can I can I use that? <laughs> yeah, please do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, obviously, Rick Sow's products benefit runners uh, amongst many other different kinds of athletes. Do you spend? Have you spent much time around runners in in you know the work that you're doing? Yeah, I I try to at every possible moment, and for the past two years, that's been our primary focus. Has been running very early on. We went even sort of narrower and deeper with ultra running. And so I worked a lot with ultra runners. My thought process was if we can work with ultra runners and cater to their needs where they're competing in really obscure environments, places, then it, it become it transcends down through all the levels. And so, yeah, I worked with a, a chap who did the Marathon de Saab and others who were doing outrageous coast-to-coast type challenges, um, working out what their needs were, where things would benefit the most. And the only way you can cater to this is by being as involved as you possibly can. It taught me a lot about receiving feedback on a number of levels. Because firstly, like, these are my baby. I've, uh, I've been designing them. I've dedicated everything into these. And suddenly you're giving it to people to criticize. So you want the critique, you want the feedback, but equally it's, it's managing that, managing my own internal feelings because you don't want to become disheartened it's very easy to become disheartened but then equally it's the ability to then strip away what is a useful implementation and what is not so the best feedback you can get is by giving it out to people to test trial pick apart and how do your friends and family see you now having achieved so much with with Rixo and I know there's more to come but you know you you've you've done it uh it's moving in the direction you, you want it to do um how, how do how do they view you how do they see you as because you, know, you mentioned before you said you know Cameron with his little idea I, I, I and that kind of you know is probably something that maybe spur, did, did that spur you on to to do more and and how do they how do they see you now this is something that a lot of people if you who are starting a business may come across. And I mean this in the nicest, nicest way possible, but sometimes it's the people closest to you that will try and talk, not talk you out of it, but they only want the best for you. And so they understand what worked for them. So go to university, go to college, get a job, work, that sort of structured mentality where suddenly with mine, I was like, well, no, I'm... I'm selling my car, I'm, I'm selling my flat and cashing in a small pension and I'm going to invest it into this crazy idea that I've got. And so it was that inner self-belief that I had that, no, this is what I want to do and I'm going to do it. And so initially, yeah, the family and friends were a bit like, yeah, this is crazy. And also I think because they they know you well, they know you intimately, friends, especially rugby, 
So they know you as the time you, I don't know, the joker and doing this on the pitch and the fun you had, and they, they maybe don't see that serious aspect inside of it. So it took a bit of time. Um, and I think with the traction that's grown, they realize actually, yeah, there is a need and a demand for this. So the family, yeah, they're in, they're incredibly proud, probably more so than I am of myself. I, as we mentioned before, you're always looking forward at the, I, this is where I need to be and want to be. And even when you hit that, you're not satisfied because you want the next level. There are times, I think, where they've stepped in to try and sort of remake, retain my balance, and they're brilliant for that. Um, I can too easily prioritize work over my own personal care, and more so now that I'm not, because I'm carrying these injuries and I'm waiting to find out about spinal surgery, it's too easy for me to say, I'm just going to sit at the computer and I'm going to work through the night and do all of this stuff. And then you end up burning out. And so they're incredibly proud and of everything that I'm trying to achieve. Um, but equally, they're the, they're the rock that will ground me um, and make sure that I'm, yeah, I don't go too far. <laughs> and it's, it, it is so important, isn't it, to have those people around you, whether it is, you know, family, friends, uh, just just people that you can talk to that, that you know they've got your back yeah definitely because it's early on not so much now but early on i found that this job as a as a founder and, and trying to grow a business um it was the first time you could be surrounded by a hundred people and feel completely alone and so getting that it was the one thing i craved and i i, I said it to some of my mentors i is having a, a partner in the business um who we share ideas, we share work commitments, we all of that. And I was really fortunate to meet Richard. Um, I always describe him as, as the, uh, the yin to my yang. And so we have a really strong working relationship now, which is great. But it is about finding balance. And I think both of us um, will admit it that we're we're still trying to find that balance within our own lives. Work is is crazy and you're doing a million things seven days a week. But it, it's addictive and it's yeah, we're passionate. It's elation. It's elating. It's disappointing. It's an absolute roller coaster. Um, and my personal growth and development over the past three, four years has been astronomical, and I wouldn't change it for anything. And that's coming with the highs and the lows. It's it's for me. It's my purpose. It's my why. It's it's what I want to do. I want to I want to help people. And yeah, Richard's really good because. I'd give everything away if I could in the sense that I'm designing these products. And as soon as I know that they, they work on certain things, as soon as somebody comes to me and says, oh, I've got this problem that's been plaguing me for ages. I'm like, yeah, here, here try this, try this, take this. And Rich is always like, you know, we're a business and uh, <laughs> we in order to survive. But I'm just like, I've been there. I've been in that position. I know what it's like to to not be able to take part in that sport you want to do. And yeah, I just I want to help. And if people listening to this want to find more about Rick, so we'll, we'll stick some stuff in the show notes, but uh, where can they go? You know, there'll be people listening to the, this podcast all around the world. So, you know, where can they get more information? And, and do, you, um, do you ship everywhere in the world? Yeah, we ship everywhere in the world. Um, so if you just go to the website, uh, which is rickso.com, and that's R-I-I-X-O.com. And so the name for Rickso actually is, um, it's a phonetic take. It literally means recovery in a native language where we were working. Um, so 
at the time in Africa um, when I was trying to work out the name of, oh yeah, what the company or what I wanted to call it. Um, so I asked some of the locals that we were working with and they pronounced the word Rixo. It wasn't spelt the same and I changed a little bit, but yeah, Rixo literally means recovery. Um, but any questions, queries, please just get in touch. And it's like I mentioned before earlier in the podcast about getting that feedback from athletes and people. It's exactly the same if there's something that isn't on our product range. Um, it could be something that's either in development or we haven't thought about, but my aim is to fill that void at the minute between a bag of peas and a £7,000 piece of kit. Cameron, this interview was not what I expected it to turn into. Um, you have been so honest. Your positivity is, is amazing. Um, you know, the, the passion that you have and that you're bringing to what you do and the openness that you, you know, you've, you've shared uh, around your experiences has been massively inspiring. So thank you so much. Uh, and thanks for being part of Run The Business. My absolute pleasure. It's been, it's been great to speak to you. Thank you to Cameron Johnston for being today's guest on Run The Business. More on his business at rixo.com. That's R-I-I-X-O.com. If you're a runner or any kind of athlete, well worth checking out. Kind of a different episode today, I know. Uh, less directly about running than we usually get into, but very thought-provoking all the same. Uh, great lessons in overcoming adversity, self-belief, and focus. Uh, Cameron has that by the bucket load, doesn't he? I did like his Good Ideas Club, a chance to put your creativity and energy somewhere safe, somewhere to park it, uh, to return to. Many of the best ideas start out as crazy ideas, don't they? And it doesn't mean you should give up on those ideas. I like the idea of putting them somewhere and then coming back to them to review at an appropriate point down the line to get some perspective on them. I have a folder in my emails uh, where I save crazy ideas and positive feedback and I visit it on the days that I need a bit of a boost or I'm looking for some new way of approaching a problem. So it's a good question to ask yourself. Where do you put your ideas? And framing your approach in a way that resonates for you, uh, I thought was another brilliant way of uh, looking at things. For Cameron, that's the rugby pitch. The try line is the goal, uh, the target. The pitch is what's in play, and if it doesn't fit, it goes on the touch line. What challenges do you have that might benefit from being framed differently, framed in a way that makes it more personal to your passion? I guess framing it as a running race is an obvious one for this podcast, but I thought that was a lovely idea as well. Cameron also talked about not taking feedback personally. It's hard uh, when you're so passionate about something your baby, as Cameron referred to it as, it can be really hard to take critical feedback. Personally, I still struggle with that. But it's so important to hear other points of view and take them on board. So finding a way to do that uh, is, is crucial. I wish Cameron all the best with his recovery and with Rickso. He's doing a, a fantastic job. We usually finish the podcast with a quote, so I've tried to find something relevant for today, and this one uh, is from Oprah Winfrey, who said, turn your wounds into wisdom. Until next time, I'm Anthony Gay. Keep running and keep chasing your goals. <laughs>